Well, Happy New Year, and uh, welcome back. I promise no jokes like John. Uh, yes. <clears throat> but really, what a great Advent time we celebrated here at Chelton last month. Uh, week by week, right, going through the book of Isaiah and learning how Jesus came as our consolation to give us hope and peace and joy and love. And, you know, as we looked at how God promised it, how God fulfilled it, and how God will yet fulfill it when he sends Jesus back again, that's just what we sang, right? The story of our faith, which is the story of God's work at world in redeeming his lost creation. And that's why we're kind of here this morning with the same Christmas flavor, but without Christmas, but with Christmas. Well, what are you talking about? Well, the, the candle is lit, right? The poinsettias are here, the, the trees, the lights. Um, that's because Christmas was just the beginning. It's not a over and done. It's not a once and okay, let's get on with the next holiday. You remember Jake was reminding us. That's the way the world around us looks at it. In fact, uh, I'm starting to wonder when Christmas will start to be unraveled in our culture next year. You know, I can remember when if you did it at Thanksgiving, you were intruding and then it was backed up to Halloween and maybe then what, Labor Day? Are we at the 4th of July yet? I don't know. Maybe some of you sing Christmas carols, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, no, Christmas is not over. It's just begun. In fact, today in the Christian calendar is called Epiphany Sunday. Have you heard of that? The word means the appearance of Jesus. And Christ's candle is still lit and the reason that Christians don't say Christmas is over, now let's move on to, is because when the Son of God entered human history, he came to restore what was lost in the fall. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God, God did not stop and say, that's enough, and walk away. He did not destroy his fresh creation, instead the heart of God, which is one of love and redemption, moved even then with Adam and Eve to find animals, use blood, another life, embed in that first act of redemption the way he would do it eventually. He's taken a long time to do it. And we're in that plan. The second Adam from above, as the Christmas carol says, is now the head of a new humanity, God's new humanity. You understand that we're all born from our parents, Adam and Eve. We're all born into an old humanity, inheriting the disposition, the nature that bends us away from loving God and sinning and fulfilling our own desires just like Adam and Eve did. And when Jesus stepped in, he broke that cycle in a real way. Everything else before then was predicting him, was pointing to him. 
in a foreshadowing way. And now, as God's new humanity, those from the old humanity who have renounced their ancestry, could we say, repented of their sin, have chosen to love God with new hearts made alive by their faith in Jesus the Messiah. That's why we've come today. That's why we were singing and celebrating. And that's why Christmas is not really over yet. Through this miracle of the new birth, heaven is entering earth one person at a time. And when it does that, it starts to turn the world upside down. That's why the graphic looks that way. That's not a mistake, okay? Uh, I was joking a bit with Dave Negley, who does our media here so well, right, in the, the slide. I said, maybe next week we should actually flip the slide so the person looks right side up and the words are, well, we'll see what happens. But do you get the point? That's not a mistake. In this way, God is changing the world by creating a new humanity. Now, that, that phrase may sound odd. <clears throat> it's not original with us. It's actually used by the Apostle Paul. When Paul is talking in the letter of Ephesians about how God used to work exclusively with the Jewish people, his chosen people, before Jesus came, but when Jesus came, that racial privilege was given up. And now the church is made up of all peoples, Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul says what, what God has done then is actually create in himself one new humanity. When Paul uses that word in the Greek language, he's actually going back to Adam and Eve. Adam, the one man from which we all descend. Jesus, the second Adam, from which all those who trust in Jesus descend. Oh, it's a beautiful picture of the church. That's what the new humanity is. We are created to be new and better people, sons and daughters of God, who are redeemed by God's one and only Son. So, welcome to the new year. But let's remember that Christmas is not a single event, but it's rather a pivotal stage in God's redemptive plan to restore his world. And we rightly celebrate for months ahead of time, in anticipation, and we should rightly live afterwards living out the implications of what Christmas is, deepening our understanding of what Jesus did in his incarnation and in his life and death to create this new group of people, this new humanity in his divine kingdom. So, because of that, today we're going to start a new series, and we're going to base it on what's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably have heard of that before. It's um, actually found in three chapters in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 6, <clears throat> and 7. We're going to learn each week 
how Jesus shapes us as God's new humanity. A humanity that is different than the world, holy in an unholy culture. Jesus would say it this way, light in darkness, salt in decay, life instead of destruction. And in this beautiful sermon, Jesus presents a counterculture. That's another way to say it of a new humanity that transcends time and ethnicity. So if you're ready, uh, this is an introductory sermon, and I thought we should read the introduction to the sermon, which really goes back to chapter 4 at the end to give us a little context, and then just the first two verses of Matthew 5. So, follow me please as I read what Matthew wrote. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. That's the beginning of what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, the mountainside. The topic that precedes it, though, is what Jesus was doing. So if you were to summarize... What was Jesus saying to people? You wouldn't say, I hope, he would say, go to church. There was no church yet. He wouldn't say, believe in my death and resurrection, because that hadn't happened yet. But Matthew says what he did was proclaim God's rule that has broken into time and space through him. Matthew calls it the good news, the gospel, about God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. You see, that's Matthew's way, actually, that's Jesus' way of describing what God is doing in his whole story of redemption. It's a way of saying that God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one with supreme authority. And all through the Old Testament time period, he had moved, but not in a way that was decisive. He was waiting to move in a way that would shake everything up in heaven and on earth. And that's when God took on humanity. The Son became man. And when that happened, the kingdom 
which ruled at a distance, now starts to invade this planet in ways that it's never seen. Ways that Matthew says turned the world upside down. In other words, sick people got healed, not by drinking a potion or going to a doctor or waiting it out, but by finding Jesus and Jesus restoring their bodies. That was a picture of the coming kingdom, the way it used to be, the way it will be, and Jesus is the focal point. He is the messianic king bringing the kingdom to earth. Wow. You know, I've often wondered what it would be like to live in the past sometime. This is one of those times I would have loved to live. Not just to be healed of something, but to actually witness what was going on. There were no sick people when Jesus, for those few years, was living in that area in the north of Galilee. Do you see it? But that wasn't his message, like, stay healthy. No, he was proclaiming that God, who can control disease and sickness, is the God who could control your own soul. He can forgive your sin. He can give you a new life. He can reconnect you with your maker. And I'm the one who does it. That's really good news. And so that's why when he proclaimed it, verse 17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So that's what this sermon is all about. This sermon, which is, as I say, three chapters long, is one record of one sermon. And it's all about how Jesus instructs his people, his new humanity, on how to live as God's new redeemed people living under the kingdom of God. It starts, like most sermons do, with an introduction. That's next week. Pastor John will take us to the Beatitudes. And then there's the middle of the sermon, which is the main message about the sermon, which is all about who are you as a new humanity person and what does it look like to be in this upside-down kingdom. And then, at the end, Jesus contrasts the old humanity that we were all born into and God's new humanity with a call to follow him exclusively. Well, that's where we're headed. Uh, this sermon will actually take us up to Holy Week. Uh, so I've, I had a few people after the first service say, well, I, I, think, I think in our Bible study we'll start to look at this. Or can you recommend a good book that would help explain some of this. Well, I can, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not prepared to do that right this moment, but uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be talking about some resources that will help as well. One resource written by John Stott, a godly pastor who's now with the Lord, said about this sermon that the followers of Jesus are to be different Different from both the nominal church and the secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete 
delineation anywhere in the New Testament of, and I love his expression here, the Christian counterculture. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. So as we go through Jesus' sermon, we're going to be reminded week by week that God's ways are not our ways. I'm just trying to prepare you a bit here. Uh, You're going to get your heart moved, I hope. You will live in ways based on what you hear where you say, oh, I never saw it that way. And what you're going to say is, I need to be turned upside down. (laughs) We're going to have to flip our expectations. We will look at our lives in counterintuitive ways to learn that God usually reverses the normal way of living to set us on a path of life and joy that's much better. It's not easy, but it's much better. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. You know, because when Matthew wrote his gospel in the first four chapters, he told us about Jesus. And in every one of these descriptions of Jesus, there's something that's unusual. Let's just quickly highlight this. You all know Matthew 1, right, starts with Jesus' genealogy, his royal genealogy. And yet, Matthew puts in there names of four women. You didn't do that in the ancient world. And those women all had less than noble backgrounds. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And then, uh, the rest of Matthew 1 is the story about Jesus' virgin conception. I mean... Step back for a moment now that we're not in the Christmas season. If you're going to talk about God sending his son to earth, a virgin conception, virgin birth, what? That's for people on the outside, it's not offensive, it's outrageous. What are you talking about? And then when you get to Matthew chapter 2, where maybe you would expect the local rulers to say, welcome to God's Messiah, what you have is the outsiders, the Gentiles, the magi, the wise men, come to worship Jesus. And the local Jewish king says, a king born? You're looking at him. Who are you talking about? And he starts to find out more about this newborn king And he goes and murders all the babies in the town where he was born. In the meantime, the holy family flees to Egypt. Now, look, if you were writing Matthew, wouldn't you hopefully say something like, Jesus, the virgin-born son, when the king opposes him, God opens the earth and swallows King Herod, or a lightning bolt comes and wipes him out in an instant to show the great of... Jesus' family runs away? I didn't expect that. And then, 
in Matthew chapter 3, after Jesus becomes an adult and starts to serve people, you know how it goes? The religious leaders. You would think, you would think, if Jesus was Jewish and came as the Jewish Messiah, fulfilling all the Jewish promises, you would think the Jewish leaders would say, Welcome, we've been singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel for generations. Now you're finally here. Instead, you know, they do just the opposite. And when John, the baptizer, starts to tell people the message that the Messiah is really here, show it by being baptized as you repent of your sins and prepare your hearts. Those religious leaders mock John. And then when, when Jesus, in the end of Matthew 3, comes to John, if I was writing it, I would say, Jesus says, John, thank you. Now you can retire. I'm here. I'll do the baptizing. But instead, Jesus says to John, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And John, even John says, what? And only reluctantly does he baptize him. Do you, do you see? That's Matthew 3. And then in Matthew chapter 4, what would you think if I said, Satan comes to Jesus? Well, you might think, well, Jesus, the king with all authority, the one who does all this healing, he just flicks him with his pinky out of the universe. No, the story is set that the devil tempts Jesus, not the other way around. Jesus' authority, where is it? Ah, it's in an upside-down way. Three times Satan pushes in. Three times Jesus pushes back. And then at the end of chapter 4, you know what it says? That Jesus has to leave his hometown, Nazareth. If you read another gospel, you find out that they were saying, hey, Jesus boy, why don't you do the miracles here? We know you. We knew you when you were in diapers. They mocked him. And Jesus, instead of cursing them, leaves town. You say, hold it. That's our Jesus? That's the one who at the end of Matthew's gospel says, all authority is given to me? Yes. That's an upside-down king. Yes. Do you see that pattern? So that's why in Matthew 5, when he starts to teach his disciples how to live like him in this kingdom, we're going to be surprised. So be prepared to see each week the beauty of what Jesus says, but also the difficult challenge of putting it into practice. Again, I'm just trying to prepare you. We're going to be called to make some radical changes, to repent of our sins, to examine our motives, and to pray for more grace and power to live differently. And what a time. 2020, you don't know what this year is going to hold, but our areas, our schools, our communities, 
your job need people who are living in an upside-down way. One that is beautiful, that pulls to life, but the other that says, hold it. What? You're not, you're different. Not different in the sense of weird, but hopefully different in the sense of that smells different, but I want to, I love that odor. Tell me more. That means that in this year when our attention is being drawn to electing a new leader of the kingdom of America, we must not be enticed by the values of this age that want to push away the values of King Jesus, our eternal leader in the kingdom of God. And when you get enticed to follow the impulses of your own kingdom, Hopefully, it'll become an instinct where you say, stop, what am I not seeing right? And that means that as God's new humanity, we must continue to love our neighbors well and to love our God with all that we are. Now, you, you heard John during our announcement time uh, go through new ministries that are starting up in January and maybe new opportunities for some of you. Can I just say, and, and this is a good time to think about it, right? Are you involved? For sure on a Sunday morning, thank you for coming, keep coming, but Sunday morning is not enough. You can't just come to the feast on one day and fast for six days and hope to thrive as God's new humanity. You've got to get plugged in somewhere. And I'm not sure what that'll look like. We have so many opportunities here at Chelton. Let me just go through them one more time real quickly. We have an adult Sunday school program that we offer with classes, small groups, where you can get into the Word of God and listen to Jesus speak. Uh, we have youth groups that meet Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. We have tapestry women's groups that meet Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings. We have men's groups, four of them, that meet different times during the week. The young adults, Sunday nights. Our community groups that meet all over the place, some at church, some in homes, different times during the week. We have our heritage ministry that meets regularly here at the church campus as well. Now, I, don't, I, I probably missed some of those opportunities, but... I'm just saying, are you plugged in some way, somewhere at the beginning of this year? Think about that. As God's new humanity, we need to be together and to listen to the voice of Jesus. And then let me remind you that we should love our neighbors. And one excellent way to do it that's coming up is our CBT course for five weeks, learning about how to know and love our Muslim neighbors. The book, which is based on a video series, will be taught by someone in our church that uh, many of you know. He worked many years in the Middle East. He speaks Arabic. And uh, you would greatly profit if you know some Muslim people. Or maybe I should say, you will be getting to know Muslim people. Be informed. And if you've been listening to the news this week, who knows? There may be another war brewing in the Middle East. Uh, 
And if you don't know the difference between Shia and Sunni, if you don't know what Muslims think about Esau, Jesus, well, you should, because these are conversation starters. Really, really important. Now, one more thing, because I've, I've got to tell you this about... My sermon today is an introduction, all right? I feel like oh, I'm giving you all this information with very little application, but can I just tell you one more piece that just makes this sermon so inviting for us? Um, Matthew wrote this, not just to say there's an upside-downness to this kingdom and this Jesus that we follow, but there's something else, there's someone else embedded in the story, and it's a man that Jewish people almost revere. His name is Moses. You know, Jewish people today have a proverb that was created in the Middle Ages, and it says this, from Moses to Moses, there's no one like Moses. Now, they're talking in the second one about Maimonides, a great Jewish scholar and rabbi. But Moses is the man, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, Who's the greatest person? Who was the one closest to God? It was Moses. He saw him face to face. And he gave the people the law, the Torah, the instructions from God. Jesus and Moses are so similar. If you think about it, both Moses and Jesus were opposed by their nation's leaders at their births. Remember how Pharaoh was destroying all the children and Moses got floated down the river and, of course, Herod tried to kill the babies. Both men were called to lead God's people out of slavery. Slavery in Egypt, slavery to sin. Both Moses and Jesus enacted covenants between God and his people what we call the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant, and Jesus, the New Covenant. Both men organized their people based on the number 12. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Both men built worship centers in which God lived. The tabernacle, which became the temple, which became when Jesus sent the Spirit, the lives of God's people. And both men taught God's people from a mountain. Mount Sinai, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. But here's the big difference. Moses led the people to kill a lamb at Passover so that God's wrath would pass over them and that they would be able to live Jesus became the final Passover lamb. Jesus, who was crucified for the sins of the world, is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and leads all who follow him to become part of God's new humanity. The one born at Christmas came for you. Without Christmas, there would be no 
Sermon on the Mount. And without Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we could never, ever live as God's new humanity. I'm going to ask the deacons to come now as we prepare for the Lord's table. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son not to create a holiday, but as one step in your loving plan of redeeming and restoring the world. And we thank you that we can pause now in our lives to remember. In his name we pray, amen.